Mitchell. At least he knows who his dad is. Episode 7 of This Is Your TV Life. Um, episode 7 already, can't believe it, but we're here today. We're going back to school in a, in a certain way because um, we're here with Jack Vincent, uh, who played Leslie, or as we mo- know him more, um, as Rem Dog uh, in Badge Education. And he was also an athlete in the Paralympics, but we'll talk about that and lots more um, with Jack just now. So, welcome, Jack. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for, for joining us. It really is it's a privilege to have you. Um, so I, as we said in the, the, the start there, you, you played, you're more, most famous for, for playing Leslie, um, or Rem Dog as he was like to be called, um, in Badge Education, the TV show and the movie, because you had a movie yeah. star as well. We did, we did. We had a movie, yeah. Yeah, you had the, the, so you had the three series, um, and as, as obviously as a movie, Um Basically, the first question we like to ask everybody is, why did what what made you get into acting for a start? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I sort of found my way into sport initially when I was about nine years of age, um, and so I had a crack at that. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. I didn't know what was available for you know a young kid in a wheelchair. I, I sort of you just sort of go with it, and um, I found a, a fair bit of success in the athletic world quite early on and this led to me being spotted Paul O'Grady um competing at a, at a race and uh he wanted me on the show he he wanted to interview me he wanted me to dress up as something I can't remember exactly what it was he wanted me to dress up as I dressed up as about eight or nine times for the guy over about 18 months and I ended up becoming one of the sort of Paul O'Grady regular children um and I was on the show like I said about eight or nine times in the space about 18 months um from there I sort of got an agent and um you know it was one of those sort of there's uh, no harm in, in trying who knows what's going to happen anyway you know it wasn't necessarily this burning ambition you know as a kid to be an actor I didn't go to acting classes as a kid I didn't even take it as a GCSE drama like in in school it was just something that happened something that an opportunity that I took and then obviously it became what it has so it basically just was it was a it was a gate that was opened by Mm. somebody famous um yeah and it just went down that road basically Exactly, yeah. Paul O'Grady opened the doors for me and I, I, I sort of gained a bit of recognition from the show. It was um, obviously a big show. A lot of people watched it, daytime TV, 5pm. Yes, this was his chat show that was on ATV. Yeah, this was on, on the chat show on ITV. I was sort of came on and did a little sketch. I was on the last ever Paul O'Grady show, the Christmas special one, uh, where I was actually interviewed, you know, quite separately to, you know, how I had appeared on the show previously. It was a lot of funny little sketches and skits. Um, but yeah, I got to interview some really cool people. Uh, Dave Batista uh, was probably my favourite one. I was a big wrestling fan as a kid, so I dressed up as Rey Mysterio and he was Dave Batista. And I, I 
called him out collecting lunch boxes uh, and it was this big it was a big laugh we had a good laugh on that show and it went from there really it went from that to sort of sport relief comic relief and then and then bad education came up pretty soon after that fantastic so so in a, in a way you were you were little at and deck of the Paul Grady show because they, they did <laughs> they come on and, and interviewed us as kids so yeah and, and that's a great way of, of getting into it um so how did bad education come about um, I was about 13 at the time, um, and I just had uh, I had an audition come through for my agent. She gave me a call. She said, listen, there's a, there's a job that's popped up for education. Uh, it's Jack Whitehall's first writing gig. Um, not too sure what to expect from it, to be honest with you, but, you know, go for it. He's looking for a guy in a wheelchair, teenager, um, to, to essentially play this sort of very witty um very sarcastic funny student um so I, I remember going for the auditions and actually out of all of the cast myself uh Leighton Williams who played uh Stephen and Nikki Runnacles who played Chantel we were the only three original cast members chosen um there was a different Joe a different Ying there was you know a different um headmistress I think at the time I don't know if it was Michelle Gomez at that point um so yeah I auditioned I went for it I, I sort of gave it my always my first audition I'd ever gone to in my life um and then unfortunately about I don't know maybe I want to say about a year or so later I had quite a bad injury um and I was in hospital sort of on and off for about six months and so they actually re-auditioned the part to other people um because they weren't too sure if i was going to be able to to do the role um unfortunately it was it was real audition for about 10 weeks unfortunately they didn't find anybody else who fit the role better than i did in terms of sort of looks and personality what they sort of envisaged for the character so they went with me and then a, 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 you know they continued with me and a year or so like later when i was 15 we started filming and the, the rest is history as they say um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll bring that history back up um, so, so it was for, for anyone that hasn't seen the show. Um, yeah. Firstly, I'd like to know why, because it was one of the best comedies of, of my childhood, <laughs> my young adulthood, I might say. Because it's not, a, it's not a kid, although it's set in a school, it's by certainly not a kid comedy. <laughs> um, it's oh. a very adult comedy, um, and they don't yeah. try, and, they don't try and portray it as a kids comedy. Um, it's very, at times, very close to the bone. Um, like some of the jokes that Alfie, aka Jack, get, gets away with, mm-hmm. I think, how did he get away with that one? How did the BBC allow that one? But it, it's fantastic. It's really funny. It's the kids obviously are heavily involved. It's set in a school in Watford, actually. Um, yeah. I didn't know this, and I'm actually I live in Watford now. Well, I'm right. from, from Watford. Um, it's an imaginary school. Obviously, it's not one of the real schools in, in Watford. Um, but it's set in in Watford. Um. And it's set, set mainly in the school, um, yeah. mainly your, your day-to-day running. Alfie's your teacher, so Jack was the yeah. teacher. Michelle Gomez, I think, was the deputy head teacher, wasn't she? And then you had Matthew Horn, who was the head teacher yeah. um, of the school. And you had um, some, you said Leighton, who played Leighton Williams, who's now West End superstar. He played one of the characters. You had Charlie Rentham, Rentham, terrible. Well, no. Charlie Warnham. Right, he played your your best friend actually in the show, yeah. um, um, Mitchell. 
he he went on to Hollyoaks. So there's there some big big names in the in the show. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's still on iPlayer. Give it a watch, definitely. After this podcast, <laughs> give it a watch. But we'll, we'll kind of touch on on some of your your co-workers or your co-stars. The first one has to be the the main the main guy. It was his comedy. He wrote it. Um, he also starred in it. What was what was working with Jack like? Yeah, incredible. Um, I think you know I was quite like I said I was quite young. I was about fifteen when I first started. I was thirteen when I auditioned. So actually, when I um, when I first met Jack, I had no idea who he was. So, you know, I was he was at the, at this point in time he hadn't really touched too much on TV. I think he was sort of in the in the sort of run-ins for fresh meat at that point in time. Uh, but he was mainly just sort of on stage doing comedy, so working his way through the scene. Um, so I didn't know who he was, to be honest with you, when I was that young. But working with him, he's an incredible guy. Really, really down to earth, really hardworking, born funny. You know, he's one of those guys who, even off off camera, when we're just chilling, having some lunch, you know, it'd be a very normal conversation by all means. But he would say something in such a way that you just better laughing and it's, it's it's not it's nothing funny but you're just laughing anyway um yeah no really great guy and uh, especially in the movie we got to spend a lot more time with him because we was um all living together on the same hotel for about four months in cornwall um but yeah lovely man would love to work with him again in the future and um yeah really professional couldn't, couldn't fault him really I'm sure that'll happen because I think all the fans are calling for a reunion. Um, so possibly you never know. See what the kids are doing now that they're out of school and could work. Maybe maybe not another movie, but a couple of episodes or whatever. Uh, we'll certainly not see that if you're listening, Jack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I take it you, you did lot, learn a lot from him and then um, the other co-stars, I'm assuming. Because you, you were, as you say, quite young. So you were you would have been taking in everything from everything, I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I was very much in my infancy as an actor. It was my first real acting job. Um, so the other guys had done bits. Uh, um, Raya, Leighton Williams, um, was in Postcode on CBBC. Um, he was also the first black Billy Elliot on the West End. So he had that behind him. He'd sort of been in the life for a little bit. Um and same for Charlie Wernon, really. He had auditioned for Britain's Got Talent as a comedian when he was really young. And um, he'd had a, if I remember rightly, he had a, a sort of extras role in between us. Um, so he sort of had a, a bit of a, a bit of a go himself. But yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from everybody. From, from sort of writing the likes of Matt Horn uh, off the back of Gavin and Stacey and, um, and then other, other actors as well. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, we're playing just one role in one episode, you know, Lethal Bizzle, um, other other actors that, I, you know, just brought something to the table. And as somebody who was so new, it was really refreshing to sort of take in new perceptions, new skills. So that's, and I think that's 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 a valid skill to, or a valid lesson to take for, for any job you do. Um, you go to a new job, like first time in that, in that job, you, you do learn from it from everybody you can. And whether that's exactly what you want to do or whether you like, because um, as I say, you were the first, it was like a comedy role, that was your first job. You might not have necessarily wanted to go into comedy roles, but you still would have learned everything and still like think, because I know Charlie's went on to more kind of more serious roles, especially with like Hollyoaks mm. and things. 
um, as he's went on to now. Um, so it's more serious, but he would still have learned everything because the, the act of acting is the same whether you're doing it funnily or whether you're doing it serious. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you know, like I said, I, I didn't have any uh, expectations or any, you know, understanding of, you know, the difference between acting and acting in a drama or acting in a, you know, period piece or anything like that at the time. It was just, I was just going with it. And I'd always been a very confident person. I'd always been the kind of person who would come in with a joke or, you know, make your friends laugh in, in school. Very outgoing personality ever since I was a, a young kid. And I think being an actor, sorry, uh, being an athlete as well, that really, help pursue that because again I got pushed into the limelight I was hanging out with you know Olympians Paralympians I was traveling around Europe competing so that really sort of added to my personality I think having that behind me prior to going into acting actually helped me who I was in the acting world because um, you do have to be a strong presence in order to get by in, in that sort of world. That's it. And, and to be seen and that that's the whole point and to, to get your next roles to be seen so that's definitely so you, you, as you say, we played. You played Rem Dog. What was your favourite thing about playing Rem Dog? I think it was probably the free reign of of you know how to play him, because you know obviously there was a an image in mind of what he looked like, and a lot of the lines were scripted, of course, by Jack. But there was definitely moments throughout the series for all of us where actually we said what was scripted and actually had a laugh about saying something else or an inside joke that happened behind the scenes. And so instead we'll use that as well. So there's a lot of free reign with the character really, especially with the type, type of comedy we were doing. Um, it didn't need to be so scripted. We could have a laugh with it. Um, and I just think, you know, as well, as somebody who'd been in a wheelchair pretty much all his life, there was a large element of, of the jokes that were, produced you know and, and and said by rem dog actually these are jokes that i would say in real life i've always used humor not necessarily as a coping mechanism i don't feel like i'm having to cope with my life but i've always used it as a mechanism to get by you know it was one of those things for me as a kid it was like if i call myself hot wheels or gran turismo or anything with wheels and I find it funny and laugh with people, then people can't use that same joke as an insult because at this point, it's not offensive. I like it. So I think for Remdog as well, on behalf of other people with disabilities, I've received this feedback from these people. This enabled them to sort of have a level of confidence they didn't once have to actually go and make jokes and, you know, enjoy yourself. It's a situation that perhaps you can't change, you couldn't alter it to go with it you know and I think Remdog was quite a big influence in that world definitely we're actually going to touch on that next we was was how much of an influence Remdog was because okay we're only going back like seven or eight years mm. um because it was 2012 it started and it obviously finished yeah it's, it's, it's been about yeah I think we're coming up to the ninth year I think we're, I think it'll be nine years this year since we started filming yeah, and so it's not that, like, you're not talking it's, it's massive. It's, you're not talking, like, 20, 30 years ago, but even back then, there wasn't, especially for kids, there wasn't that much representation for disabled kids on TV, especially in that way. So I think for, for young adults to see Remdog would have played a big part. What, what, like, how do you feel about that, like, being such a, 
a role model, if you like. I think that ended up becoming more of the, the aim in the end, it, it, rather than sort of like, I'm doing this because I want to be an actor, I want to be in Hollywood one day, or I'm doing it for a wage. You know, it was nothing like that. It actually, in the end, it was more about me wanting to represent, you know, an entire generation of, of people with disabilities and show them that we can do whatever the hell we want. We can, you know, you set your heart to it, you go out and get it. And I feel like, you know, right, there was not a lot of representation on TV, especially in TV series. You know, you get the likes of Tanny Gray Thompson and Warwick Davis and all that, you know, these are people that have their disabilities and have attacked the world in their own field and, and done incredibly well. And then they're on TV, perhaps interviewing or being interviewed, presenting. Uh, but in terms of sort of like, TV series and movies yeah there wasn't many there really wasn't many and you know funny enough only yesterday I received a comment on one of my TikToks where I was talking about disability um well this guy oh, how crazy is this I was two years old and I wasn't even disabled at this point I think he had a car crash when he was about four but he was two when the show came out and now he's 11 and it's one of his favorite programs and in that period of time, he'd, he'd had an accident which left him in a wheelchair. And uh, that's crazy to think somebody who was like, you know, a toddler is now watching the show we filmed and he's still finding and taking stuff from Remdog that's helping him for his life. So I've, that definitely has carried me through. That definitely um, makes great. You know, I've, I've met some really cool people over the years with disabilities who have seen me in the street or... I've gone to events and charity events and, and, met, and met some cool people that have really been influenced by Remdog. No, that, that, that's great to hear that you're getting that feedback as well, because although you, you might be, when you were filming, you maybe thought, oh, this is going to be or it has the potential to be an influencing and, and things. But getting that feedback just proves that it was. I don't think I realised it when it was actually being filmed. I don't think I actually looked at myself as an actor or myself, you know, Remdog as a character who said he's going to influence a lot of people. I think at that point, perhaps it had something to do with the fact that I was only sort of 15, 16 years old. Maybe I wasn't thinking about it in such a way at that age. It was more by the time we got to the movie, the movie was quite sudden for us as actors because it wasn't initially the plan. And so there was supposed to be a fourth series, um, which was unfortunately cut short by the fact that BBC Three was no longer a TV channel. It went online. And um, I think it was around about that point, really, when there was sort of the, the news of there being this movie came out. A lot of feedback that came to me was, oh, my God, there's going to be a guy who's actually disabled playing a genuinely disabled character on our movie screens you know on dvd and it was that was when it hit me it was like wow people have needed this for such a long time you know i'd never thought about it myself and actually thinking about it when i was a kid there wasn't anyone for me to look up to because i've said this quite a lot in interviews in the past where you know when you're a kid your teacher goes to you oh what do you want to be when you grow up and you go i want to be a footballer i want to be a doctor I'm a man. and they'd always come to me and i would say Oh, I don't know. Because uh, uh, because the thing was, it was like I I didn't know what there was. And if I turned around and said something like, "Oh, I want to be a basketball player," they wouldn't be able to sit there with confidence and go, "You can do that if you want to," because they had no clue. And I can't, you know, and I can't fault them for that because they didn't know the ins and outs. But there wasn't anyone for me to turn around, you know, and say, 
I want to be like that guy and it sort of be a realistic ambition. Because when I was about six years old, I wanted to be like David Beckham. That was never going to bloody happen, was it? So, but that's because I I liked football. He played for Manchester United at the time. So I just, you know, associated what I could rather than what was relevant. Yeah. And that's the thing. And people might be listening to this thinking, yes, but there was like the Paralympics and things. But even back then, it wasn't, the Paralympics wasn't broadcast to the same extent. It wasn't till 2012, the London ones, that the Paralympics yeah. really got the, the level of, of broadcasting that it deserved, like, for years. Like, because it's, it's just, it's, and I don't want to belittle the Olympics because the Olympics are fantastic as well. But the Paralympics, I think, are harder because you've got the, the initial disability to overcome, like, and then to think, right, okay, and, and you'll, we'll touch on this a bit more at the, towards the end because we, we talk about your career as a Paralympian and, and things. But no, definitely, like, the, there was, and, and we will be as there was some people, but there wasn't, like, the, 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 le- the level of people like there was for, for myself. Like, I'll be perfectly mm. honest, like, for, for an able-bodied white man. Like, and, and I'll be honest, like, um, okay, I am gay and I, I have some, like, things, but... Um, we're talking disabilities here. There wasn't even like looking back. I tried to look back today, or when I was when, when I knew you were coming on, and um, in preparation for today, thinking about who there was, and there wasn't that many, especially on TV as such. Like as we talk about, um, um, you know, I've over the years, it's it's become a real moment when you're watching a movie you've not seen before, and there's actually been somebody genuinely disabled in it you know i watched um i don't know why i'm so late to the party but i watched mad max recently and um in 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 that film i can't remember the guy's name now i'd never met him i would have loved to unfortunately passed away now um but he has the same disability as i do except it's a different type a more severe type and he played a character in that and it was a very very obviously disabled person who was playing a very obviously disabled role and he killed it in that film. He was incredible, you know. Um, and then you sort of get films like, um, get what well, we get series like Glee. You know, the guy who's in a wheelchair, he's not actually in a wheelchair, and he quite often gets out of the wheelchair and dances in the in the series. Um, I forgot the name of the film. I'm trying to think of it. The one with the blue characters, and they go into this what, Avatar. Uh, Avatar. Yeah, Avatar. yeah, and uh, yeah. And in terms of like scripture. I understand Avatar. I don't think anybody who is, uh, you know, in a wheelchair or an actor with a disability can be made of the fact that that person is not actually disabled in real life because he's playing the blue Avatar. You know what I mean? He, you can't have him as really disabled and then playing an Avatar because he's going to be disabled as an Avatar. So I get that. I get that, but there are times when it can be avoided and you really can bring in somebody who's, who's you know, disabled to play the role probably better than somebody who isn't. No, that, that's it. And we're, we're going to touch this on later, but we may as well, we've got that, that gate now, so we may as well go. Um, the, the, there is this big debate on on a lot of the, the minorities or whatever, the, I don't know the right, exact right word, but at the moment, and, and disabled is one of them. And obviously, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a sin. Um, which is the, the LGBT drama that Channel 4's on. There was a lot of discussion behind that about people who aren't disabled, LGBT, black, all the rest of it, playing those characters. And I think it's, it's completely wrong. Like, unless there's 
for example, Avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, like so there are some ex- ex- reasons for it, but like there's, there's no reason for as much as he's a great actor. The one that comes to mind is, is the Good Doctor. Um, his name mm. is completely escaping me at the moment, but he, he does it really well. But he's not artistic, and no. there are some fantastic artistic actors out there. So I feel if unless there's a reason, and do you know? Do you know? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? Because. You know, my acting career following bad education did not go to plan. It didn't go how I wanted it to. And I thought about the reasons why that was the case for many, many years. And there's a few factors involved which are to do with myself. And then there's a few factors that are out of my control. And, you know, I had genuinely met over the years, be it in a social situation, writers, directors, producers, who have openly stated that their reason for not writing disabled roles or not having disabled actors playing disabled characters is there's that fear of the unknown. There's the fear, you know, because you know if you get an able-bodied actor on set, he to be like Tom, Dick and Harry, who's also filming. Whereas if you get somebody in a wheelchair, you know, there's health and safety potentially there's a carer there maybe there's you know wheelchair access on set you know I definitely experienced it when I was filming Bad Education the movie you know we're three in the morning pitch black in a deer farm in the middle of Cornwall isn't exactly wheelchair access at its peak so I mean I, I do get where they're coming from but I definitely feel that there have been times when disabled actors have been cheated at roles just simply because somebody won't explore the unknown you know they, they have a level of arrogance to them which uh, you know they perhaps don't perceive to be arrogance they just perceive it to be a professionalism you know and um and they and they roll with that and it's sad it really is sad because i know that there's a whole generation of of disabled actors who you know haven't found that path yet they, you know, they're too young maybe um, who aren't going to get represented the way they should. I have a two-year-old daughter now, and she has the same disability as I do. Fortunately, she's in a much greater position than I do, but I know that if she ever went to become an actress when she's up, it's going to be a lot more difficult for her to get that level of work and, you know, to be a, become as successful as an able-bodied actor and actress um, right from the get-go, really. But I think it's it's... I think it's, it's our job to, to, to say no to that. Just like directors and producers and writers and like people, it's their job to, to change that. There's only they're the only ones that are going to be able to change it. Like the fans, we have what we have words. We can change things by words, but we can't physically change it. Like mm. um, I think it needs to, to come. Like producers, directors, writers, all those people need to start saying, look, no, if I'm writing a disabled character, which See, every show needs one. It should, but not every story is going to have to have one. But yeah. so that's a different, whole different subject. But if there is one, then they should be played. Like we should, like health and safety and wheelchair access and things are legal now. Like whether you have somebody that's in a wheelchair or not, these are things you should have. Yeah. Like anyway. Um, yeah. So I think. Those excuses, and I'm, I understand what you're saying, but those excuses are, are, are old-fashioned now, like, for directors to be using. I think they should say no. Yeah, I can be Yeah. Um, 
then they should be in a wheelchair. Like they, they should. And don't, and don't get me wrong as well. You know, I, you know, again, in my time as an actor, I have found myself in conferences and in meetings and sort of at um, read-throughs for for Channel Four, mostly Channel Four comedies and dramas, and uh, Channel Four are a fantastic representation over the years for getting a lot more disabled people on camera, you know, and there are a newer generation, a younger generation of producers, writers, directors who are very much game for, you know, representing disability with disability. And unfortunately, these younger, newer people to the industry, you know, are struggling to get their concepts off the ground. And actually a large part of this comes from again the unknown how do you accurately write and portray a disabled person when you aren't disabled as a writer so I've had this conversation before with a female writer who had wanted to create a a, um, a series about three flatmates and one of them was in a wheelchair and it was meant to be a comedy and she ran through the idea with with me he spent hours absolutely hours crying of laughter over some of the possibilities two flat three flatmates one's in a wheelchair one's black and one's gay oh my god you just have a box set of laughter because there's so much you can do with that and jokes that can be made that aren't offensive and you can genuinely have obviously a black actress or black actor, a gay actor or gay actress and a disabled actor or actress. And you've then represented three people who are playing characters that are designed, not necessarily even designed for them. Like, you know, they can play, they can be themselves and they can have a career. And, you know, you're not having somebody who's not gay pretending to be gay because that at that point it can be portrayed as, def- as offensive. You know, and she was too scared, though. She was too scared to write a character who was disabled because she goes, what if I write this in and meaning for it to be funny, but actually it's offensive? How do I know? Because I'm, and you know, I offered to write it with her. I said, listen, you know, write it with me, you know, because I'll tell you what we can and can't do. If it's not obvious, you know, I'll tell you where the line is. And me being, I sort of, you know, went from acting into stand-up comedy, excuse the pun, and I have said jokes that are way above the belt, you know, like, in terms of disability. And I've had a lot of negative feedback, I've had a lot of positive feedback, and that's it, really. You're going to have two types of people. You have people that like it, you have people that don't like it. The people that don't like it, don't watch it. The people that like it, keep watching it. And and that's life, you know, but it, p- people are scared to, to, to write these. No, I, I don't think it's right that people should be scared to write these things now. I think everything, no matter what you write, whatever you direct, whatever you produce there's going to be people that you say that like that love it and people that are going to hate it that that's everything down to the to the the bbc news to strictly come dancing mm. you, you anything you whether we're talking disabled or not um but you've got to we've got to have that one forefront of it that does it and just says do you know what and i know channel four they've been fantastic i think the fact that they have the Paralympics plays a big part in that and um, they have the broadcasting mm. right for that so that does play a massive part in, in that um, but it definitely needs to it needs to change things need to change um, 
more so in the 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 actors playing disabled actors when they're not disabled. The disabled characters are when they're not disabled. That's that's the biggest thing that has to change initially. Um, especially as we have lots of there are, as you say, Avatar is one of the best examples, but there are times that you you can't, whether that's a film that's yeah. about somebody that becomes disabled. Uh, so maybe for some of the film they are they are able bodied um, and then they become so that that's a that's the kind of storylines that can't because like like so for Glee, um I, I Chris Colford's a fantastic actor, nothing against the actor himself. Um but that to a certain extent I, I, I don't get with, with Glee, I've watched I've watched it before and um I sort of at this point maybe you can tell me the answer. I don't get the relevance of making him disabled in the first place. Was it simply adding a wheelchair into the mix to seem like we've got a quality or did the act did the character have an accident and it ended up in a wheelchair i don't know or, if how, you know, I, I would get that i don't know I if there was that. a there wasn't a i don't know i can't remember if there was a backstory there might there must have been a backstory and yeah. um, i think it was more the because at the towards the end it was how he was going to make it on broadway and how so it was to bring into the storylines of, of how he was going to change. I think so if, the, if, the, if the character was had a, a backstory where he was became disabled for one reason or another and was now being played by a non-disabled actor for a role of a disabled person, then I get that because it has to be the actor for continue um, to continue and make make sense. However, don't then have him stand up and dance. You see, the I... only time I can remember that happening um, for definite is it was a flashback, not flashback, a kind of dream of him wishing that he had got these legs that made him be able to walk and things. So there, there was storylines that... I get that. That's within that, context. Yeah, that was that was context. That was. I don't remember him just doing it for no context. I, I could be wrong. Like I could be wrong, but... There was definitely the storyline. Ryan Murphy's a fantastic writer in respects of he writes for the minorities, likes of disabled, LGBT, black, all the rest yeah. of it. Um, and he very rarely gets it wrong. Like, I'll be honest, he does American Horror Story, he does everything like that, and he very rarely gets it wrong. But this time I feel he did kind of get it wrong when it should have been someday. Um, but there, because there was the storyline, as I say, going forward, storyline of how he was going to be like, what was he going to do? Exactly what you were like. He was at school and, right, and Matthew kept asking him, sorry, Mr. Shoe, what are you going to do? And he didn't know. And, that, and he tried to find his place in society and things. So there was that. But that didn't mean he, he couldn't be played by a disabled guy. I can't remember his backstory. I'll be perfectly honest. I no, remember. I can't remember either. Um, I should because I was a massive fan. <laughs> anyway, we, we digress slightly. Uh, we'll, we'll move back. But we definitely, things have to change and, and somebody has to take that to take that photo and I think as I say we keep mentioning Channel 4 but Channel 4 have done that like not massively they've not obviously not changed society but they're, they're, they're starting to um, mm. with shows like no so you've got um, like so Channel 4 doing like The Last Leg um, where you've got obviously got Alex uh, Brucker and Adam Hills who are both disabled um, working with an able-bodied person Josh Widdicombe and they very often have like have disabled people on, whether that be comedians, actors, and, and the forefront and the show 
what you can do, not what you can't. So I like I do like that show. Um, and Jennifer will have a, a, quite a few others. Like they've got a lot of Hollyoaks characters are now um, yeah. and things. So it, it, they, they are starting to, to, to slowly go, um, just not quick enough. For my I think the first, time, the first time I ever saw a disabled guy in a TV series, I was actually meant to play the role, one of the roles in this programme. So I was meant to do a series before bad education and again because of injury i couldn't do it but it was desperados on cbbc with adia debitan all right yeah it was a wheelchair basketball show and um i was meant to play one of the lead actors in that i was about 12 i think at the time because uh, i knew adi quite well from the world of sports um we did a documentary together where we changed sports i taught him wheelchair racing he taught me basketball he did the london marathon and i played a game of basketball for a team and um we sort of switched over and um yeah that was that was probably one of the first times i'd ever seen a genuinely disabled actor in a, in a series was was on cbbc no that, that's good to see and it was great if i had to just kids one because cbbc and citv and all those nickelodeon and all that have big roles to play and then that sort of thing Mm. Um, and CBC has um, focused on that because um, the one that comes to mind exactly is it's not wheelchair, but it's um, the kid on Tracy Beaker. He was to say, and he was actually yeah. so there, there was. Yeah. Um, that's when it came, comes to mind for me. Um, yeah. So no, they, they are. They have. They, they they are trying, just not quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be quicker. Um, so get your TV channels, get your uh, fingers out, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but, but coming back on to, to bad education a bit, um, obviously it, it was it was a comedy. Um, that, um, it's no, no um, secret that at times was was very um, close to the bone. Um, yeah. Especially with some of the stuff Alfie says, I also in this Jackwell Hall, Um more so from, like, if you look at it from a teacher's point of view, the way he treats the kids, um, it's quite shocking. But the way he treats them individually at times, um, I, mean, I know he makes jokes at, at Leighton's expense, because obviously Leighton in the show is gay. Um, I'm terrible with names, but the, the Chinese girl got Ding. it. Yeah, she got it terribly. Um, yeah. I remember that. You got it a few times. But he was quite kind of pally with you and Mitchell. Uh, the character, Alfie, was yeah. Uh, we became friends more with you rather than teacher. But how was basically what I was trying to get there is how was it like as actors to portray that, knowing that it was close to the bone? Um, it was a real laugh. It was an opportunity to be able to to you know make these jokes and it be okay. You know, it was a, a place where obviously this was this was the the intention you know I, I definitely think that there was there was jokes that were made in that show when i was 15 that i didn't get until i was 18 you know and I, i'm sat there in the room you know hearing it and laughing and reacting because i'm told to um you know stuff about ying being um a member of the imperial air force you know and putting the flag on her head um i had a line where i, I sort of threatened um alfie wickers and i said um how he needed to correct the, the mock exams. He needed to mark the mock exams. And I mentioned uh, um, about Sally Gunnell in the, in the, in the, and I didn't know who she was. 
I was like 15 year old me threatening out Jack Whitehall with Sally Gunnell and I don't know who she is um yeah so it was definitely you know past the watershed comedy at times um I don't know how we got away with some of it um again I mentioned earlier I've sort of been doing a lot of work on TikTok recently and um, posting videos and replying to people's comments and, and one guy last night reminded me of a of a scene I think it might have been season two um, because I don't remember playing emo rem dog in this scene. Um, but we were trying to raise money. And one of the ideas that we had was let's put the disabled guy out on the street, let him dribble a little bit and just say, we're trying to raise money for him to go swimming with dolphins in Florida. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you really just can't get away with that now. You know, we had such a laugh with that, but, you know, when that came out, it just—it was just full of laughter. And then, obviously, times have changed, and now that would—that's a thing of the past. But yeah, it was a lot of fun to be able to have that leeway and you know be part of comedy at a time when I feel comedy was still comedy. No, that, well, that's yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, um, I, we could see a lot there, but we're not uh, we'll not go down that road. But you, your character as well has been as a comedy. It, you had some. Some some hard not hard hitting because that it wasn't that type of show, but you had some some interesting stories. I think so. Well, um, that you had to to tackle and respect. And two that comes to mind with me and straight away is you had one that where the teacher pretended to be to be paralysed. Um, so you had to to touch on that. What happens if people do use that like as an excuse or a reason? And also the one. That, that I liked that, that involved you was you, you showed a bit of emotion at I think it was season three, season three that towards the end um, Mitchell said something to you and you got a wee bit emotional and you were called gay for it. That that yeah. And then obviously the, the backlash and not the backlash from the, sh- the show, but like what you had to, to, to do and everything. There was those two storylines that, that initially came to my mind that thought you think um you had to to, to and for a kid to do it that way, that must have been quite hard for a for because you were still you were still under 18, so you were still technically a kid. Yeah, in the third series, I was 17. Um, and it, this was the first time I was filming out of education. So at that point, regardless of your age, you could be 16, 17, but whatever time you sort of leave full-time education, you're considered to be an adult in the acting world. And um, it was a different experience as well, not having to be tutored on set, because I had my exams in season two, so I was still studying as well as filming throughout and training for season one for the for the, uh, team GB so that was that was a very crazy crazy time and that's sort of you know what led me to um you know hitting athletics on the head and just pursuing acting was because I you know learned to enjoy the acting a lot more than the athletics and uh, that that was what made it a very easy decision for me to drop that um but yeah in terms of you know some of these very emotional moments that you know it's still unclear to me even as the actor who played the character if that was Red admitting he was gay <laughs> i don't know obviously at that point mitchell is is leaving the show and um Emo Rem Dog's a very emotional character for that series and he turns around and he says i love you to Mitchell and Mitchell's response to that is okay and you know that very much uh, you know summed up Mitchell as a character 
it very much summed up Jack Whitehall as a comedy writer. It was, you know, as, as, as potentially as detrimental as that scene may appear, it was a very funny, beautiful moment, actually, where it all sort of came together. So I think that's, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't difficult at all. It wasn't hard-hitting. It wasn't too much for any of us, you know. It was, you know, Leighton Williams, as, as I mentioned earlier, is, is gay. And I don't know personally, but from filming with him, I don't, don't believe had anything bad to say about someone coming out as potentially gay and then being called gay for it uh, gay you know so i think for all of us this was very much just this is comedy we we are having a laugh here we are creating tv for for everyday people if you don't like it don't watch it and and that's very much the sort of opinion that we went with that's a great opinion. Like, there's always we're not in this society here that we've only the two channels. We've got hundreds of channels and loads of streaming platforms. So just go and watch what's selling it. But back then it wasn't streaming, but that much. But now it's just don't watch it if you don't like it. Definitely. Um, yeah. So what were your friends outside of the show like about the show? Um, <clears throat> I think my friends were very much done with me at this point because <laughs> I. I um obviously I, again the athletic took off and I sort of became a bit of a name as a junior athlete and I was doing this and doing that and I wasn't living exactly same normal life as a sort of 13, 14 year old guy. And then obviously acting for them, for them lot, very much came out of the blue because they aren't there for the audition. They aren't there for the 18 months in between. I go to school and I'm just Jack, the guy in the wheelchair at school who's having a laugh and you know tell the maths teacher that maths is shit and you know that that was very much me in school um and then all of a sudden one tuesday night at 10 p.m jack's on the screen playing remdog in battle education and so i think for them it was it wasn't a big deal because they knew me for so many years prior to this i made a lot of new friends um going into college because i think if i remember rightly i um was I was going to college when I was 17 so that was around the time I left college after a year of being there to go off and film the third series right. um and that's how I was considered to be an adult in the acting world um so I made a lot of new friends people obviously knew who I was and I definitely felt that some people were trying to be friends with me for the wrong reasons um but yeah, I, I, I think my friends, had, I mean, I'd never really had a too much of a problem. I've never sort of found myself in a position where I felt they were being um, particularly abrupt or negative because I'm this person now, I'm that guy on the TV. But yeah, I definitely, uh, it definitely enhanced a, a level of social situations in my life for me. Oh, that's good to hear. And if it, if it hadn't, then I'd have been wondering, like, why? <laughs> but, but you mentioned <laughs> yeah. there about... Um, um, like people knowing who you were um, that, that maybe hadn't met you before. Obviously, from bad education, you obviously became a household name in a, in a way, um, certainly a household that watched the show anyway. So w- what was it like suddenly? Obviously, you, you were an athlete, but you weren't like, 
Athletics, uh, you, you've got two types of famous when it comes to athletics. You've got the ones that do really well, and then you've got the people that that, that do really well that are like massive names, like like Greg Rutherford and and Tom Daly and all that. And then you've got the people who do well and, and, and are famous within the athletics society. Mm, um, yeah. So that, that there's two different levels there, but and you obviously were the the, the, the latter with the athletics, but obviously with the the, the, the what I'm trying to see here, the, the bad education put you into the, the, the household name, really. So what was it like suddenly being able to be spotted on the street? Yeah, um, it happened pretty much overnight. And it was it wasn't something that I actually uh, prepared for, really. Um, I remember the series came out and um, 2012 is a Tuesday, 10 p.m., new episodes every Tuesday. And I, I was going to school the next day on the Wednesday and I between my house and the school it's about um, three quarters of a mile and I got stopped about 12 times by kids asking for a picture I just thought it was so bizarre but I very quickly learned to thrive off of it and uh, as it went by it only became crazier you know I I'm signing I'm signing phone cases in the street and I'm you know but my the mother of my daughter um our first date that we ever had was um, in Kingston upon Thames, and we were sat at a, a sort of bar along the river. And um, there was a, there was a guy sat behind us who was a journalist, who was you know writing down notes about what he could hear. And there was a photographer across the bridge who was taking pictures of us from afar. And I caught I caught them out midway through and made a made a scene out of it. And the waitress was a friend of mine, kicked them out and everything. But that that's what it got to really. It became insane, you know, getting you know, again nights out as well, you know, going on nights out with the Geordie Locks on there for Greg, Charlotte Crosby, Holly, you know, and we are clubbing in, in London. And the paparazzi was was ridiculous, and like you know, obviously they're there for for, for them lot more so than me. They were bigger names than I was in, in some ways. But then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks later, there's an article that comes out about how I'm dating someone from Geordie Shore, and it's what because you you took a picture of me next to them, like you know, as this was another side to it as well. It was. It was was dealing with that sort of sort of element to it too, but I enjoyed it. I, I still do enjoy it. I don't get recognised as much. I got a big old beard, and I found um, pizza since then and gained a few pounds. Um, <laughs> Haven't so we I all don't locked get... in? Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, I, I've changed a lot, and I still do get recognised, but not as much. More so online than than anything. Yeah, that that's the thing. And so, what what were the what's your Apart from your first day, obviously, what's your, are you any strange stories about getting meet, met by fans, not paparazzi? Like, have you um, more strange? I've like, had some, I've had some moments where sort of people have realised me and just sort of like stopped the car and got out of the car and, you know, they're holding traffic up and they're beeping and whatnot. They've got out of the car to have a picture of me as I'm sat outside Starbucks cracking on to an eggnog latte. Um <laughs> Yeah, that's quite, you know, I've been sent some weird stuff in the past as well. I've been sent hair. I got sent some hair. Um, really, really weird. Don't know why they sent me hair. Where did, I, I, did, I don't know where it came from. It went straight in the bin. Um, sorry, that's me. Sorry, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't. Um, Just don't clear that up. <laughs> I got, do you know what? This, this was very strange. So um, a few years ago now, oh, quite a few years ago now, I was invited down to this um, 
3D waxwork modeling company. And they put me in this booth and they had about 150 cameras all around you. And they, they took pictures all at the same time. And they created these miniature 3D super realistic waxwork figures of me. And there was one of me in a wheelchair and one of me standing up and I was just for a different look was, was me standing and I still have them somewhere not in this room I do have them but they are incredibly weird and lovely but I got sent I, I knew that they existed obviously because I was there there's a lot of stuff that was made in the world that I didn't know even existed I didn't receive any money for I should definitely be suing someone but I, I got um I got sent a picture of a girl in her bedroom in Japan. She was about 16 and she had pajamas with my face on it, duvet with my face on it. She was holding a bobblehead Jack Binstead. Like I want one of those. And apparently that they, they, creation was huge in Japan. I had no idea. It was huge over there. And they had all this merch that was just created, fake merch that was created and people loved it and bought it. I think that's what Japan's like. We merch, they, they are big on their merch over there. Um, for the shows that they, I've heard that before, definitely. Um, that, that certainly is a lot stranger. That got a lot stranger than I thought it was going to get there. But okay, <laughs> good to hear. Yeah, so we'll we'll move on slightly to to the movie, um, the Bad Education movie that came out in two thousand and fifteen. Um, to mixed reviews, I think it's a, a good word of putting it. Um, mostly good, but there was some some mixed reviews. Um, but it was set down in Cornwall, majority yeah. of it. Um, again, it was most of the original cast, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all the original cast. We was all there for it. Um, I don't think Michelle Gomez featured in it. Um, I don't think so. No, she was only the first. Two we had some... She wasn't even. Yeah, two. so she. Was... Right, yeah, yeah. So she was in the movie. And uh, obviously we welcomed some new faces as well. We had a couple of villains come into play that um, were incredible to work with. Um, but yeah, all of us original cast were, were part of it. Apart from um, Grayson. Oh, yeah. He was the bully. I it took my minute yesterday, so you meant, but yeah. Um, so what was it like in part of the movie? Because you were there for, it was four months it was filmed for, wasn't it? We was in Cornwall for four months, to my recollection. Then we was in Wales for another month because there was um, some logistical nightmares involving the big castle fight at the end. A lot of the interior for the castle was actually filmed in Cornwall. Um, and the exterior, the actual castle itself, was supposedly Cornwall, but it was actually in Pembrokeshire in Wales. <laughs> that's the, the the great thing about films you just you, you think you're somewhere but you're actually not yeah you know the, the film starts off I, I think it's the, the, yeah the film starts off with us um in Amsterdam Nick and Anne Franks from, from our house and again that was filmed that filmed in the UK yeah it was filmed in Cornwall yeah yeah so that, that's and actually you, we thought you were in Amsterdam fantastic um, there was a there was a a premiere. Um, what was that like going to your? Was that your first premiere, or was that your first? That was my first proper premiere. Yeah, I was. Um, how old was I? I was 
18 coming up to 19 uh, I was about a month off being 19 and I was very very quickly after the premiere I went on and did my first theatre job I was in Wales in Bumpson Theatre um, but it was probably to date one of the craziest nights of my life it was absolutely incredible because you had people there that obviously were just big names so you know you've got Jonathan Ross and you've got um Pussycat Dolls, you've got, you know, Piers Morgan. And these are all names that are just turned up to watch the film. You know, they've been invited and they're not actually part of the show. But yeah, when we got out of those cars, the the response we received from the hundreds and hundreds of people that turned up was just crazy. And I was very fortunate to have my mum and sister there, actually, as well, right at the front. Um, and they, they watched us all do our bit and sign stuff. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing moment, really was. Yeah, because I've been at a few premieres as a fan. Because you've got like people that, that you, they queue up for hours to go to premieres. Mm. Um, you can go and, and be part of the red carpet and get photos and autographs and things. I've done it. I've been there. I've done it. Um, I was too young to go to the bad education one, but I've done it in the past spell. I say past year, slightly more than a year now because I've not been a film premiere this year um, for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, so it is, it's it's a mad event. It's like. And it's, it's, it's mad for maybe, like, it's quiet, and then it's mad for about an hour, and then it's dead again, like, because you're mm. all like watching the movie, so, and then that, that's it, when it quietens down, everybody goes. So it is, it's a great thing to do, but it, it must have been great to, to just be part of, and um, and would, would you do it, like, if there was um, a um, reunion, would you do it again? Would you go back? Yeah, I'd I definitely, I definitely would. I think, you know, it's probably one of the most asked questions we've ever received. I mean, I've definitely received, and I'm, I can only assume that the other actors and have received the same questions. But is there going to be more bad education in the future? Is there going to be a second movie? Um, and you know, to be honest with you, I can't answer that question. Um, no. As far as I'm, as far as I'm, the honest truth is, as far as I'm aware, nothing's been written. Um, there has been discussions in the past about a second film, and then obviously this is very much dependent on every current acting jobs. You know, you can't have two contracts open. Charlie Warner was in Hollyoaks uh, for a good three years in the end. So I think he did another year or two years after Bad Education finished. I know that um, uh, Kai Alexander, um, who played Ying, she went off to America. Obviously, Lazy Williams was was absolutely still is absolutely killing it on the West End, um, you know. And then obviously there's the other things happen in life, you know. Like I I um, went and had a, a daughter when I was 22, uh, um, and I absolutely loved her. She's she's my my pride, my joy, my world. Um, and I you know acting at this time is not my full time job. I've gone on to have a new career elsewhere. I still have an agent who sends me jobs through, but it's just not as easy anymore. You know, it's not necessarily it, when you, when you're, when you're 15, 16, you, you got everything ahead of you in the world and you just go, Oh, I, I, I want this to be my dream. I'm going to, you know, make it work and I'm going to be Hollywood star and it's going to, you know, everything's going to take off and it doesn't always work like that. And then you find yourself as an adult with petrol to put in the car and bills and kids and you know you sort of go oh it's, it's not as easy as it was when I was 15 living at home with my parents 
difference in, you know, having no outgoing bills. You know, it's very much a different life. Um, not impossible, not impossible. But, you know, they say 5% of actors actually make it. And there's a reason for that. You know, there really is a reason for that. Once the statistic is so low, um, it makes total sense. You know, all it takes really is for, you know, one moment in your life. And I've definitely experienced that myself for everything to change for you and how big that change is depends on you know a number of circumstances what it is you're going to do who's seeing what you're doing how good was it that you know what you did how good was that uh, and all of that is you know take Tom Holland for example you know he had you know was a child actor um, very very skilled actor from a very young age and then you know as far as jobs he's done in the past compared to, you know, Spider-Man coming out. Um, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. So it was a stick off for him. And that's, that's um, a, a job that, you know, is a good example of, of someone's career. Just absolutely takes. No, that's it. That's definite. Um, just a few, a few more questions to go. Um, you obviously, you've touched on it a bit, but you, you, you wear a, a Paralympian. Um, you still ask us. I'm sure you, you still keep your hand in there and there. But you, you, you were European. Uh, you were part of the European Championships, weren't you? Yeah. So I, I, I um, my Wikipedia and a lot of other websites call me a Paralympian. I never competed at the games. I was a Team GB athlete with them. Um, I was the fifteenth time. So as far as competing goes, um, was very slim chance of me ever competing um there's a lot of politics in the world of of disabled active uh, sorry disabled athletics which a, a few years back when i was an athlete was very much an issue for a large amount of us there's a lot of politics involved and team gb didn't quite do things how we felt they should be done and they weren't done as well as other countries did it in terms of selection process units available funding etc so we were very much um you either had to be top one percent in the uk or you you know you're just whatever you've forgotten about yeah. and i was never given an opportunity really to be in that top one percent because of my age um but also it comes down to classification as well in terms of disability i had a disability that classified me as what's known as t54 and that's the same as the likes of david weir um Marcel Hook, some of the fastest wheelchair athletes in the world. And these guys are in their 30s. I'm 15. So what odds do I have of, you know, actually being the top 1% in the next 10, 15 years until they retire? Probably slim. And that was it for me in the end. It, I, you know, I won't do it. was, uh, do I want to spend the next four years of my life working my ass off five times a week, two times a day, around a job around kids around schooling and whatever else they go on to do only to not make it again and have to wait another four years for this big moment so for me that passion wasn't there but I did get to you know compete at world championships and at European levels I was national champion regional champion as a kid uh, broke a lot of course records um, how many of them I still own, I don't know, but I there's definitely a few fastest course records that I've I completed. Fantastic, and that that an achievement, I think, in itself. But then to say that that, that was done in a wheelchair it was was outstanding. That that you didn't just say because you you were in a wheelchair. You've been in a wheelchair since you were three. Is that correct? 
Correct, yeah. Um, so you could have easily just went, you know what, I've not started, I've not, like, I've not, I've grown up like this, so that's, that's it, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to accept it and then move on. But as mm. you didn't, you went, no, I'm not going to accept it, I'm not, I'm going to break barriers down and I'm going to just say, no, I'm going to do this. And and you, you had people to look up to, like Satana Gray Thompson and, and David Weir and people like that, but it, it was great to see that you, you just said, no, as a kid, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to, to let this stop me. That's what I love about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, <clears throat> as a kid, like I said, I was quite an outgoing, confident person. So when it came down to sports, especially in school, I was always somebody who gave absolutely my all. And I loved sports. It's my favourite thing. And I, I don't know why I remember this, but I always do remember it. I was in primary school. We were playing cricket. And I don't know, I, I was somewhere in the playground and this kid absolutely smacked the ball and I caught it and it was I was in the right place at the right time and I caught it then it happened again some kid smacked it and I caught it and this kid he was a very athletic kid he wasn't in a wheelchair I was standing across the field and he got so annoyed that he pushed me out of the way he said I'm standing here the ball keeps landing here I want to catch a ball so I moved somewhere else and they absolutely bollocks this ball when I caught it again for another position and I remember the entire field of able-bodied people just absolutely getting enraged at the fact this guy in a wheelchair it was just caught three balls in a row by luck, you know, by whatever, through skill. And, um, I, yeah, so, I mean, I was always very good at sports, but sports for me happened. Um, there was a, a sports day from my local council that they'd set up and I went to it and there was tons and tons of people with disabilities from all over London that had attended this sports day. And um, I attended and it was basketball table cricket, table, uh, uh, wheelchair tennis, and another sport, I can't remember what it was. I didn't compete in it because it was too physical for brittle bones. I think it was something like disabled jiu-jitsu or disabled karate or something along those lines, um, which is a thing. It's crazy. That's, that's, a, that's a real thing. Um, and I played basketball, and I was the only one shooting three-pointers. And I was playing tennis, and I was the only one who was actually at winning points. And they just looked at me and they said, who is this kid? You know, why is he able to do these things? And so it went from there, really. I was then drafted into wheelchair racing. And thankfully, there was a local club to me, um, at the time called Velocity. Uh, they were based only a couple of miles away from where I lived. So it was very easy. It was very accessible. Um, I had a lot of funding for, for wheelchairs. Um but it all took off quite quickly for me in the world of athletics. I remember being about nine years old and I was doing a time trial in Richmond Park in London um, to try and compete in the London Junior Marathon because the youngest you could be was 12. You're considered to be a junior at the age of 12. Before that, I don't think there really is a word for it. Maybe an infant. I don't know what it is, but like, you know, you're not old enough to be a junior. And I remember passing the time trial for this event at the age of nine. And so they turned around and said, well, listen, he's done the time trial. Can he compete? And they dig. And I came third in the entire event. Um, so, you know, it was a... It was potentially a natural um, a, a natural thing for me. But the reason Paul O'Grady got involved was around my third or fourth London marathon, I actually broke my leg very badly in a couple of places five days before. And compete. I broke it on the Tuesday on my wheelchair for the first time in about three weeks on a Saturday. 
competed on the Sunday and then won the London Marathon <laughs> with a broken leg. So that was why Paul O'Grady got involved. He saw that and was like, right, let him on TV, come on. So, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, that's, I just salute anyone in sport, but more so. I, I worked at the London Paralympics. I was one of the, the games makers down there and it was it was just a fantastic place to be. Like, it was, it was. great. Because, well, it was great anyway, but I think London 2012 was, was a fantastic place anyway. Um, but mm. the, the Paralympics got so much love. I think because there was there was the hype of the Olympics and a lot of people missed out on that hype. So they, they, they said, let's go, let's just make like, a week or two weeks later, obviously the Paralympics started and they said, right, let's... Let's get this and, and the, the, the hype and that it's continued since then. Like obviously, was it Brazil four years later, and I'm sure sure when Tokyo does take place, mm. uh, it will be the same again. Obviously, it doesn't look like it's going to be this year again, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, obviously, at the moment it, it's it's August, September, October. Sorry, August, September time this year. At the moment, fingers crossed that takes place. But the, the hype like, has just progressed for the Paralympics, and I love it. I think it's it should get the same level as the Olympics because it's. I I, 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 I don't think yeah I don't think Rio quite had the same level of representation as London. I think that's got a lot to do with the countries that host it. You know, Brazil being a country that potentially isn't as accommodating to disabled people in general as. England London is to say people that live here, whilst there is still an issue with the likes of inclusion and access and you know representation. As a as a nation, we are a country, we are a nation that is improving and working on the representation of people. And so actually looking at who we have in the world of sports and in the world of you know, you've got Tony Gray Thompson, Ali Adapter, David Weir, you know, you've got um all of these amazing athletes and presenters, we are representing, there is a level of representation there that somewhere like Brazil has never had, yeah. you know? So I feel like we were able to hype up to a level that was so impressive and 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 give it what it deserves. I don't think Brazil sort of had that burning passion to do that. You don't need to do that for the Olympics. The Olympics is as big as it is wherever it is in the world, because it's the Olympics. The Paralympics needs a little extra boost from the nation that's hosting in order for it to be an event as magnificent as the Olympics. And I don't think Brazil has that. But I'm hopeful that Tokyo does, because they are, you know, Japan in general is is very much a country that is seems to be, at the very least, 50 to 100 years ahead of the rest of the world in terms of technology. So... With what they can produce, I reckon would be phenomenal if they really put their mind to it. The, the problem with Tokyo that they'll have, unfortunately, is I think more than likely this, if, it, if it's done this year, it'll be behind closed doors. So both the Olympics and the Paralympics won't be the same this time around, unfortunately, due to the right. coronavirus. Um, unless they postpone it to next year and they, they decide to, to do it, as, but then they're going to have to then postpone everything, every other one from now on. That's the problem. Like they, if they do it this year, they'd get away with doing it in three years' time. But if they do it next year, they won't get away with doing it in two years' time. So it, there's a lot to take into. It. That's the thing. But I think if it's yeah, done this I don't, year, I don't know. I, I think in terms of 
I don't know which way it's going to go because you've actually raised a really good point there about obviously it being every four years what's going to happen now it's delayed. It's a very good question, and uh, you know I I don't know what the answer would be. I, I I you know I don't think it would be too much of an issue, really, in terms of planning to go four years on from when it happens because even though follow the same pattern as the past, you know. I don't think it entirely matters too much, really, because you've still got four years to prepare. You've still got four years to build. You've still got four years to host. But I don't think that would be too much an issue. But that would be quite an interesting concept if they do change it. Well, that, the thing is, that's why they, they said it was OK to postpone the year, because three years is fine. But I think I just, I'm thinking more for the from an athlete's point of view as well, because mm. they then they have, to have time to settle down and then, and then train again. So, like... There's a, there's a lot to take into account, and I do not want to be the, the head of the IOC. That's definite um, th- at the moment because they have a lot to, to, to go about. Do they do it behind closed doors, mm. i.e., as I said, over Zoom? It's not going to be over Zoom exactly, but do they do it like the, the, the only way we can watch it as fans is on the TV? Or there's a lot to take in. Um, yeah, actually, I, I, I read something recently which was um, very interesting leading on from this was. I wonder what level athletes are going to be competing at because rather than having four years to prepare, they might have had five or six. And that's the question as well, isn't it? You know, you sort of go, oh, bloody hell, they actually have had six years from the last games to, if it happens next year, even six years to prepare for the next one. You know, how many world records are going to get broken because they've had that amount of time to train? So that's quite interesting as well. I think that's that's going to be an interesting event. Or it's going to be folk like us that are that's, that's lockdowns hit hard and it's they're going to have the the, the, the couch races and all that <laughs> the lockdown race <laughs> exactly the lockdown race yeah that's the other way but anyway moving on we'll, we'll move to our last bit now um which is just TV in general your Jack's uh, viewing habits um so obviously as we said there we're, we're currently in a, in, a, in lockdown uh, I think I've said in previous episodes it feels like it's lockdown fifty five. Um, but it is only <laughs> lockdown three for the UK because I know we I, I, we found out now that we have viewers, uh, listeners, sorry, all around the world. Um, so yeah. our UK, government loves a lockdown. I don't think they've I don't think they've ever heard of a country called New Zealand. Who's this? The British government. I don't think they've ever heard of a country called New Zealand before. <laughs> we'll, we'll not go into the politics of things. Um, we'll we'll <laughs> open that gate, Jack. Um, get my podcast shut down. <laughs> um, but we are currently locked in three, so and, and TV has has played a big, big part in, in everybody's lockdown. Um, whether that be the very first lockdown, or whether it be now, or back in November, or whenever. So, what TV has got you through the lockdowns? Um, I've re been rewatching. A series, an American series. I'm a massive crime fan, right? Uh, or crime documentaries, crime series, anything like that. So, Criminal Minds. Yeah, my mum loves that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely massive fan of that program. Um, I think, in terms of you know having an idol, Matthew Gray Goobler, who plays uh, Doctor Spencer Reed in Criminal Minds, is probably my favourite actor of all time in anything ever. I absolutely love him. He's a role model of mine, and um, would would I don't know what I'd do the opportunity to meet him, but uh, it'd be pretty drastic. 
Um, so criminal minds definitely is what got me through. Good. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, no, I kind of it's, it's it's a long running show, isn't it? That's been running for it's still running. Isn't fourteen, about four, fourteen seasons. Yeah, ah, it's, it's been, been quite a long time. So that's great to see, and it, it's still much needed and much loved. So that's good. Um, what's one TV show that you'd love to be in, and you can be as unrealistic as you want here? Oh my god, I'd love to be in. Um... I want to say Criminal Minds again. I'd love to be a detective. I'd love to be a profiler. But if I wasn't going to say Criminal Minds, I would probably go with... Probably EastEnders. I reckon I'd make an absolute badass villain in EastEnders. Just like, you know, punching Phil Mitchell on the head and having children with Sharon Mitchell because she doesn't know who she wants to be with nowadays. And yeah, I think EastEnders maybe. That'd be quite a laugh. Currently, Sharon's currently poisoning her husband, so you better kind of watch. Well, I mean, she can't, exactly put, she, she can't exactly put me in a wheelchair, can she? So no, we're she, all right. She's poison you, though. So no. still the same. She's trying that with Ian. Uh, um, I mean, I think we don't, we, you know, he's had his go. He's been on the TV for 150 years. And it's, you know, it's yeah, time. Feels like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, other than bad education for this one, you can't answer that. Um, yeah. What one TV show would you love to bring back? Bring back. Do you, do you know what my answer to this is, is quite surprising? It's not necessarily like a TV series, but it is a show that right. I would love to bring back. And it's, this is going to hit you right in the thing. How old are you? Me, I am 29. I have to think about that. 29. Okay, so you'll remember this. I remember this. I'm 21. I'm younger than you, but I know this. Jungle Run. <gasps> yes. Okay. <laughs> I I've st- I caused a bit of mayhem in the last year because of Jungle Run. So I was invited onto the show when I was a kid and I saw it being filmed and I was there with Michael Underwood at the uh, the studios and they gave me one of those silver monkeys that you collect on the show. Yeah. And I had this monkey for about 15 years and obviously the show has, has finished and, you know, it has been gone for a long time um and i had this thing sat there in a drawer for so long right and i just thought i don't know why i've got it i don't have anything to do so i put it online to sell it okay and i sold it for an undisclosed amount of money that i did not expect okay because what happened was people realized what this was and it, it became an absolute bargain wall auction site sort of thing for this this monkey and eventually it sold and since then i have been bombarded probably with over ten thousand messages and emails from people asking me if i have a second one and who i sold it to because it was actually bought anonymously um uh, my understanding is it was bought anonymously for it to be placed in some sort of museum um so I don't know who, who bought it, so I can't give people that answer. So you um, had a jungle run monkey anyway. sold it? I, uh, yeah, I did, but you know what? <laughs> it just seemed... Uh, I, when I saw, I picked, I picked up at the drawer and I saw, I was like, oh, yeah, it's a jungle run monkey. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I had it sat on a bedside cake table. My daughter grabbed it one day and started trying to eat it. And I thought, oh, I don't know what this is all about. Like, I, I don't know why I've got it, really. And 
yeah, I just thought I, I don't, I don't need it. I'm not bothered by it to be honest. Do you know how many kids would have killed just to hold one of those, not to own it, just to hold and be able to? Yeah, well, no, they, they, like... they, 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 they were using their, their mum's credit to bid for it. <laughs> if I knew it was happening and had any sort of decent money, yeah, I'd have made you a bid without a doubt. I'd have bought it, um, but probably wouldn't have had the money for it. Um, Bit controversial. Probably the most controversial we're getting the show is what one TV show would you been? Would I been? Yeah. Oh man. I think for the sake of the fact that we would have won a lot more awards, probably in between us. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, what show? What comedy show was it specifically? No, no, just what TV show? What show would I been? Oh, I don't know, really. I don't know what for what reason I'd be bending it. Um, I mean, you don't, have, you don't have to give reasons if you don't want to. <sighs> like, I'll give you an example. Mine would be Love Island. You'd be in Love Island? Yes. Why? As much as I am addicted to it every year, it is a lot of rubbish. Like, yeah, there's, there's, there's some fit people, though. I, I agree there's, that, but it's just a lot of rubbish. That, that's the is. problem, though. It's all fit people. Yeah, but are you... We'll get somebody like vegan and like 10 ton Tessie going, you, you, some pizza and you, aren't, you ain't moaning when there's some hunk in his boxing shorts on the TV. Come on. Okay, come on. No, right, okay, moving I on. Think, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't really know what show I've been, but I tell you a good concept for a show would be Love Island for plus-size people. Yes. That I'd, I, I'd be on that, right? I would... Well, I'd I would we'd be on that. And... and that would be that would be TV gold because these people just wouldn't care. The breakfast they'd be eating, we'd have, we'd have doctors on standby. It would just be yeah, it would just be a whole episode of just people eating bacon and sausages. It'd be incredible. Absolutely love that. I would watch that a lot more than I would. I've never. I don't think I've ever watched a Love Island season through and through, but I, I've, I've caught bits. But I would watch that for sure. On the condition that Ian Sterling still narrates it. Um, definitely. what? I said, on the condition that Ian Sterling still does it. Like, he still narrates it. Yes. Well, he yes, of course. Because he's just a comedy genius. Um, he is good. What one reality show would you do? Would you do, like, a celebrity reality show? Uh, that's a good one, that is. Do you, know what Maybe. Do you know what I would love to see you on? Strictly what? Come Dancing. Go on. Get Strictly Come Dancing. Really? Get you on Strictly Come Dancing. That, so, that, that, would end, that would end up becoming a fantastic comedy because I can't dance. That would be a comedy in itself. But I think there's never been a... Like, there's been a special. That, that, I think it was a Christmas of Children Need Space. You know what it would you know what end up looking like? It would end up looking like... If somebody grabs back of my wheelchair and starts pushing me while we're dancing, it's like someone chopping through Tesco's with a trolley. Right, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Anyway, what would you do? Sorry, I'll let you answer the question now. Probably. Maybe some Towie. I'm not from Essex, but like that sort of like. Scripted. That sort of reality. Yeah. Reality. Exactly. Uh, yes, that's, that's a good one. Um, not massive fan of Terry, but yeah. Um, I I'm not, I'm not but I just love the carnage. I'm not yeah. a huge fan, but I love the carnage and the and the 
the drama. The drama. Um, and our, our last question um, is, what was your top three shows of all time? My top three shows of all time. Right. Criminal Minds is definitely up there. Such a big fan. So that's Criminal Minds is definitely up there. Top three shows of all time. Uh, Bad Education. There's that geezer in a wheelchair in there. He's pretty fucking great. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can swear on this, pro- on this podcast. I'm sorry. Um, for the sake of editing, yeah, Bad Education. He's pretty great. Um, and... I think they're creating a new one, but I want Bridgerton to happen a second season a lot quicker. I think that it's definitely going to happen. They've announced it this week that it's happened. But I want it now. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen now, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not going to happen now. I can understand why you want it now, but it's not going to yeah. happen now, um, yeah. especially with the COVID restrictions at the moment. True. Um, Very true. We're lucky we got it the first one when we did. But anyway, that's us. Um, you, you have I'll tell to you what I'd bring back actually quickly. I'll tell you what I would bring back Robot Wars back in the day. They did try it, remember, and it kind of failed miserably. Loved, loved to Dara, but he wasn't brilliant. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't Craig, uh, put it that way. Oh, it wasn't. Um, but that, yeah, no, that that's a good one. I did enjoy Robot Wars, I've got to say, especially when it was on BBC Two back in like way back in the day, way um, back in the day. But, but that's us. You, you've got to the end. Um, you, you have survived. Uh, that was <laughs> your TV life. Um, there we go. Hopefully it continues in some format or another um, in years to come. We'll get you on to, to be the disabled acts on the shows that we talked about. Um, there we definitely. go. But thank you very much for, for joining us. Not at all. For, for taking part in, in things. So, yeah, if you haven't watched already, make sure you check out on BBC iPlayer and I think also... Netflix, but don't quote still me. Netflix. Yeah, it's doing uh, Netflix. Bad education. Um, and join us next week, guys, when we are going across the pond. Um, we're going to the US of A um, with um, a Buzzy, Co- Buzzy Cohen, um, who was a contestant, one of the most successful contestants on the game show of Jeopardy. So we'll be talking to him about his time on that and also the late great Alex Trebek. So join us then. But once again, Jack, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, And guys, take care.